Hello and welcome to Noise Creators episode 19. Today I'm with Matt Allison. Matt's a rad, rad guy based out of Chicago who had some really, really interesting things to say. You probably know Matt because he's worked with Alkaline Trio, The Menzingers, Lawrence Arms, and man, a whole lot more. You know, whether it's Mast Intruder to Smoking Popes on to Uncle Tupelo, we get into a lot of really cool stuff on this one, and Matt's a really insightful guy who's definitely got the old school smarts mixed with the new school techniques, and I think he really shed some good light on the balance between those two on this episode. So, check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? Well, I'm at home. Um, so my chain is pretty Spartan. It's a, uh, little Sennheiser dynamic mic going through a Groove Tubes The Brick. Oh, yeah. Because that was an easy mic for you to, to move. The studio that, that I, that I own, um, Atlas is booked out for the month by one of our other engineers. And, uh, so I'm doing, uh, most of my mix work from home. Oh, nice! This, this, all of my mixed work from home this month, and uh, which is fine because I'm set up. I'm set up uh, with this. I have the same setup at home as I, as I do at the studio. Cool. Um. So tell me about your background in music. Well, my my parents were of uh, musical persuasion. My mom was a composition major in college, and uh, my dad was a uh, kind of a singer person who. Um, sang in various vocal like choral groups so uh, I grew up around a lot of music all the time all types of music they, they were very open-minded about uh, you know I, I listened to a lot of classical music when I was a kid mm-hmm. but also um, they uh, they enjoyed all the the rock stuff that I listened to as a normal kid I started uh, playing guitar and played guitar and bass a little bit um, in various high school outfits but really just enjoyed the recording aspect of, uh, of music a lot. I really enjoyed the creative process that, rec- that is involved with recording and uh, have pretty much just been doing that ever since. I, I haven't, haven't played out in a band in quite a long time, many years, and that's okay. I, I enjoy the recording. Nice. 
So tell me about the transition from how you become a musician to ending up being the recording guy. Sure. Well, how that worked was after high school, myself and a bunch of my buddies, we all lived in a house. The, the drummer from the band that I was in was also in a, in a hardcore band. They were called We Hate Cake. I had really gotten into four-track recording when I, was, when I was a kid, and I had a four-track, one of the old cassette four-tracks. My buddy's band's band, the hardcore band, they needed to, they were like, we need to, you know, we need to make a demo. And I was like, well, I have a four-track. It'd be a blast to try to, like, make a, try to make a good recording on a four-track, and let's go down in the basement and try to make it happen. And that was, that was how I kind of got the bug. And then from there, I bought, I bought a Fostex quarter-inch eight-track and um, like a Tascam, a real cheap Tascam board. And myself and a friend, we put it up in our attic and had like a little attic studio for a few years. This was in Champaign, Illinois, back in 1989. Oh, wow. Yeah, a long time ago. But it was fun. Nice. I had a lot of fun. I, I recorded, uh, in, in that attic, I recorded demos for the band Uncle Tupelo. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yes, I am. Uh, that's pre-Wilco, right? Exactly, yeah. And they, they were from Belleville, Illinois, which mm-hmm. wasn't too far west of Champaign, close to St. Louis. And they, they, were, they had been a band about, probably about maybe two years, and they, came, they drove in and uh, did a demo, full-length, kind of like album, basically, um, up in the attic of our house, and uh, that got them their record deal. From what I understand, I think it was eventually re, like, re-released mm. in its entirety by, uh, I think, Sony... So the Sony Legacy label or whatever it is, they, they put it out. Because Uncle Tupelo has quite a cult fan following. Yeah, for sure. Still. I mean, that, that they were like big CMJ band at that time and then still live on because of Wilco. Yeah, yeah they sort of, they, they were sort of like the the pioneers of that, of that alt-Americana, mm-hmm. you know, genre that, that kind of blew up back then. Yeah, it seems like that genre even just keeps getting bigger with each year that goes on. Yeah, it's it's it is it's it does seem to have its own thing. Pretty cool. So that's pretty awesome. You were there at the dawn of that. Yeah, yeah, they were very good. They were a great band. You know, it, it was very cool to 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 uh, record them up in the attic because they cut they cut it basically live. You know, except for vocals. But the three of them played it together, and um, yeah, they were a fantastic band. So that was that was that was great to do. And that kind of sent me on my way. And then about a year after that, I moved to uh, Chicago. And I got a job at a uh, studio that's no longer around. But I got to do just sort of like this band, all sorts of different kinds of bands that would come in d- doing demos or albums or whatever. I mean, I, I recorded every kind of music there, like country, metal, blues, rock. But it was ultimately a couple of punk bands that I recorded around 19... 19- 94 one was called the lonely trojans and the other one was uh, the bull weevils oh nice yeah i i, I played a show with them probably in the mid 90s yeah and uh, that was what kind of sent sent me on my on my um journey with so many punk bands was was that was were, were, were those relationships there nice and then and then about a year later in 96 i opened uh, my own studio atlas so tell me about uh atlas well atlas was um Originally in a on the second floor of a of a building uh, in my neighborhood here in Chicago called Andersonville, it was uh, not very big. Probably at that time, probably only about about eight hundred square feet, I would guess, roughly. 
uh, that was in 1996. We moved in 1998 to another 800 square foot place where a lot of, you know, well-known punk records like Alkaline Trio's God Damn It was cut there. Mm. Great record. Yeah, very, very rough. This was not, ac- but the, the studio the, the studio space was essentially a storefront with a wall built, you know, about a third of the way through to the back, and the, the window put in and that, and to function as a control room and that was that was it. It was pretty pretty Spartan. I mean, like Alco- uh, that Alkaline Trio record, it was cut on a on a blackface ADATs, the original ADAT machines. Wow, yeah, rough rough, rough times. Yeah, uh, and it was uh, in the console, if you can call it a console, was uh, this little uh, uh, soundtrack soap topaz. Oh yeah, I remember that one well. Yeah, little little guy. And then in um, let's see, it would have been two thousand five. 2005, we moved to where we are now, which is a full-on 2,000-square-foot real studio facility that has uh, a lounge and an ISO booth and a huge live room and a really nice control room and kitchen. And uh, we've been there now for 11 years. And Nice. Yeah. Uh, tell me about something that makes your studio unique. I would say probably the thing that people come to the studio uh, that they probably enjoy the most is probably the live room. People love to record drums in in that room. Both drummers and and engineers love it because it's if you want a, a very live sound, a cool live ambient sound, you can you can get that in there. We also have <clears throat> built it up to where if people want a, a a tighter, drier drum sound, it's it's also very easy to do. That's important. I think a lot of studios neglect that. Yeah, I mean, you want to have options. I think that's that's the I think that's the key, really. You really want to be able to have options to sort of shape your sound for your particular song or, or album. And sometimes, you know, you've got to be able to change the the sound of the room because the sound of the room will always leave a sort of fingerprint on your audio. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to be able to to be to be able to work to work with that. Um, I think that's a great point. Yeah, and the. Uh, I think another thing that bands love about the studio also is that it's it is right in the middle of uh, Lakeview, which is a neighborhood in Chicago. That's it's where Wrigley uh, Wrigley Field is, and there's a lot, the Metro, uh, the Metro, the like, the venue of the Metro is there. Very popular area, lots of nightlife. Uh, but the studio is set in the back part of a building, so it's very very quiet and stealthy, and very very private. So people can get in there and and. Um, you know, not have any distractions at all while they're working, and then when they leave, they're right out there in the middle of heaven. If they want to have fun after their session, they can do that. So it's a very, very good location, very lo- close to everything. Nice. And Chicago is a great city, so people love people love um, coming to the city to to record just because they love to be in 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 Chicago as well. Such a great great city. Nice. Yeah, it's a great neighborhood. I spent a lot of time in there. So tell me about one of the coolest pieces of gear your studio has. Well, probably my favorite would be the uh, we have a Wonder Wonder Audio CM7, which is basically mm. their their U47 clone. Um, now I, I know that there's a lot of U47 clones out at this point these days, but the the Wonder Audio one um, actually is built was built using the all the same components that were originally used, so it makes it, in fact, the, the, the U47s that Telefunken currently makes are made by the same fellow, they've just, huh. they're just rebranded as, as Telefunken, at least that's my understanding. 
Yeah, and Wonder seems to really have a attention to the detail of classic stuff that really shines, I think. Yeah, it's th- that, you know, that mic, you can use it on anything, uh, but primarily, you know, I use it all the time on uh, on vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets used a lot on rooms. I, I see a lot of engineers using it on uh, the room mic as well. It's, uh, I love it on vocals so much just because of, it makes the voice just sound so beautiful. So it's it's really great to to use that and just capture someone's voice in a way that you, you almost feel like boy I, I, this is just the best it can get right here although i still like once in a while will choose uh i remember i worked with a band and we you know we tried the 47 and it was almost too detailed and we ended hmm. up switching to an sm7 yep <clears throat> and that that worked out ended up working out better just because it sort of contained the the fellow a little bit better Cool. So, so that's my that's my favorite that's my favorite thing to have in. The- yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's one of the things is that you need uh, those two in your cabinet to be able to handle the different types of voices. Mm-hmm. Um. So tell me, uh, what instruments do you play? I play guitar and bass. Yeah. Um. I can play maybe about two beats on the drums, but definitely do not consider myself a drummer. But yeah, just get guitar and bass. Nice. Uh, so how involved, like we have this uh, saying, this podcast, where we're trying to show people how involved the producer gets in songwriting. On one side, you have Steve Albini, who really doesn't get involved and just kind of captures the band as they are. Then you have like a John Feldman who like rewrites the songs completely. How, where do you see yourself on that pendulum scale? I, I, I wouldn't say I've ever rewritten anyone's songs. I felt bands with the songs when, when, when they've needed it. I mean, generally it's the artist making the album, not the producer, so... I don't think it should become too much about the producer when a, when a record's being made. I don't think that's the most healthy thing, truthfully. We want to be encouraging having better artists, not necessarily uh, making it about, like I say, making it about the producer. But I'm always happy to help with with getting um, the songwriting going because it's the most important thing mm-hmm. in, my, in my estimation. It's one of the reasons why I always ask for demos before before an album gets done so we can get that squared away before the band ever comes in the studio i think that's the truthfully where the vast amount of good production that happens <clears throat> excuse me on a record happens before the band ever enters the studio Agreed. Simply by being yeah. simply by being um completely prepared for going in there and, and and performing the songs the best they can be performed and making sure the songs are in the best possible shape that they can be before they're uh, before they're recorded Agreed. So, what do you see yourself bringing to records most often? I have a very open mind as far as music goes. I'm not. I like all types of music. I like. Uh, I think a lot of people are shocked by. You know, I do. A, I've done a lot of punk records, and then when I tell people that my my favorite band is the Beach Boys, sometimes mm. they get uh, shocked by that, which I suppose I enjoy to some extent seeing them be shocked by that. <laughs> So yeah, I, I come from a much more, uh, you know, I'm like, a, my second favorite band is the band Big Star. I'm very much uh-huh, a pop, great band. pop uh, person. Um, you know, I love the Beatles. So my my, my tendencies uh, tend towards uh, classic uh, guitar pop stuff, like like uh, Queen or the Zombies or, or bands like that. Now at the same time, I still love heavy, you know, I'm, um, I still like lots of heavy music as well. But I'd like to, I, I'd like to think that like I bring sort of a pop sensibility mm. to things, you know. I'm I'm I, I lean much more in that direction than I do, you know. Let's say the the sort of uh, abrasive um, industrial type stuff isn't really my thing. So 
I don't really work on stuff like that too much. I'm much. I'm just more song uh, oriented. I would say. Nice. I think that that's a thing that gets underestimated that we've talked a bit about on this podcast. That like having some very high standards of classic taste. Like I always joke that um, growing up on sloppy punk records of the '90s almost like had me at a deficit that I had to learn what tight good songwriting should be <laughs> instead of and reverse engineer it instead of starting with tight good songwriting. Yeah, and I think, but I think that's. Um that's that's part of the fun thing about being a music fan I've always found is I remember when that, that sort of journey of discovery where you know you're you're young and you like a band and you know you'll be reading about them and you read about what their influences were and via that you'll get turned on to bands that you never knew about before that were perhaps around you know before you were listening to music you know back in like say the 70s or something like that and it's 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 pretty cool that, that you you learn you learn about. I think you learn a, a, a lot about a lot of uh, forgotten or unknown bands that way, and you, you get to hear a lot of cool music that way that you might not have, might not have heard otherwise. I, I I think that's a great point. Um, so tell me, uh, what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? Tempos a lot of times mm. need to be uh, nailed down a little bit better. I think that that comes from you know the rehearsal aspect. Uh, the, Things can always, I feel like, be rehearsed more. Um, it used to be that bands would often take care of the 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 rehearsal aspect could be taken care of via simply going out on tour and playing the songs on tour before they they were recorded. However, now you'll see bands be wary of playing new songs out on their tours because they get concerned about people throwing them up on YouTube before they've been release the public i've actually had that happen with some records i've done where the band did not want to play any of their new songs lot work out any of them live because they they did not want them to leak onto the onto the internet before the proper recorded version yeah and this is a, a huge problem for comedy now today oh is it really oh yeah i mean that's what all the comedians are talking about in bands and this is this is a big big deal yeah it's 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 definitely a, a 21st century problem that you know did not exist that long you know so long ago did not people didn't have that that problem so yeah i think that's the 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 not being able to work stuff out in the live environment like a band used to has definitely changed things a little bit i think bands now that pro tools is so ubiquitous um it, i think there's a little bit of uh leaning on the technology a little more than i would probably prefer which is understandable. You 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 want when you have tools at your disposal that are powerful, you want to use them. Um, but at the same time, I think I think uh, there's you don't want to lose the art of, of people playing together in a room and making cool music together. You know, so a lot of times the things that I think bands need to do generally is, are to get get the songs worked out in advance with with and very basic things like I say with tempos. Uh, sometimes also a, a common thing I've noticed is is, is the key people will have their songs in keys that aren't necessarily working out so well for the vocalist. Uh, they'll be written in a key that's often too high for the vocalist. So I try to encourage them to either try doing the the song in a different key, lower key, to see how it changes how the vocalist feels about it, or uh, tuning down, you know, tuning to dropping the tuning a half step, sometimes a full step, to also accommodate the vocalist a little bit more. But it's just basically things like that, getting the Getting the songs in the in the in the right shape to be on a record prior to ever coming into the studio. Nice. Um, so, what happens when you and a band disagree about something? Well, I I make my case. 
you know, of why I feel the way I do about something. And if the band disagrees, that it's their record. You know, they they they're gonna have the final say on it. You know, all I can, you know, like I say, I can. All I can do is sort of state my my side of the of dis the discussion. Um, and uh, if they see it differently, like I say, it's their album, and they they get to uh, they have the final say. You know, if it was my album, I would have the final say. But it's not. It's theirs. So. They are the uh, ultimate arbiter of uh, what happens. Nice. I, I, I like that saying. Um, what's the best lesson you've learned about creativity recently making records? The, the passing of David Bowie a, a few hmm. weeks ago sort of got me back into listening to his records and thinking about how he approached art and approached creativity. He viewed art as and life as sort of an open canvas, and I think that was... An, an amazing way to think about about music that he never felt constrained or limited by genre. Mm -hmm. I think the way that he sort of approached his his career was was really very inspirational. I think there were a lot of lessons to be learned from how he how he went about making his records, which, which was basically to never let yourself get boxed in mm -hmm. by genre or other people's expectations or things like that. You know, follow follow your own muse and do what you want and don't sweat so I think it's you know it's it, very common for everyone to worry about how their peers feel which is what's normal I mean that's the way people sort of gauge where they are in their lives is how they is by their peers that's that's how how they get feedback and but one of the cool things I think Bowie did as far as art goes is that he didn't seem to ever let that stop him from doing what he wanted to do you know he trusted mm -hmm. him trusted himself implicitly and i think that's a good thing for artists to have to trust your artistic instincts i think that's a, a great point i'm really hoping that the good side we get out of his death is it seems like a lot of people are really observing how genius he was at creativity and hopefully people get inspired from it i know i have been lately of just devouring documentaries and again on his stuff yeah he was an amazing man he yeah. really was uh so we're going to do some rapid fire questions about how you feel about some modern production tools. We like to keep this to about like four sentences or less on how you feel about each of these things. Amp simulators, how, do they have a role in your productions? Yeah, I think they're, I think they're great. Um, I, I love the, I love using them on things other than guitars, you know, mm. Sans amp and 11, those things, the things that come with pro tools. Fantastic. Really useful to have those in the box when you need to dirty something up. I like that. Uh, how about sample drums? Also fantastic. Uh, the Trigger 2 software mm -hmm. is uh, really, really easy to use when you need to do that type of thing. The, the, the fact that you're able to blend it only, I, whenever I use those, I try to blend in as little of little as possible, and the software makes that very easy to do. Pitch correction. I don't like auto-tune. Um, I use, uh, I use uh, uh, Melodyne. And I try to use it as little as possible. I think stuff is generally, especially in obviously pop music, stuff is overly, overly pitch corrected these days. So, how about mastering your own records? I don't do that. I suppose I could, but I enjoy. You know, there's a there's a, a number of mastering engineers that I really enjoy, and I, I I really like to hear what they bring to the to the project. I I could do it, and maybe I will in the future. But right now, I like using good mastering engineers for that so this is another one of those ones that we ask and if you don't have something we just cut it uh 
What's something you believe that everyone else thinks that you're crazy to think? You know, it used to be, it used to be my, like, it used to be my, um, it used to be my love of Brian Wilson's music, but, you know, he's actually become, people have gotten hip to him Mm -hmm. the past, you know, five, ten years, so it's not my, my opinions, my, uh, my, my view that he is the, one of the great composers of the 20th century is, uh, no longer a weird thought, so Uh that would be the only one I can think of. Um, Cool. How long do you like to take to work on a song usually? And then how long does it usually case scenario take to do a mix? Yeah, I, I think we usually, when we tell a band, um, when, we're, when we're budgeting out time for a record, we usually tell a band that you, you, could, you can plan on, you know, this is an average. It, it's, it differs depending on how many vocal and guitar tracks are going to happen. But generally it's to sort of budget out about a day and a half to two days per song. And then when I mix, I usually mix if 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 things are going well, one to two a day. Yeah, two two uh, is two is a good day if I'm really kicking ass, basically, you know. But mixing is a lot of fun. I love mixing it, and when you can spend, I enjoy spending. You know, I, I like spending just one day on a mix. Truthfully, I, I like hmm. just working on one tune and and really having fun with it and going through it. But uh, two is also a, can be done, and it can if you're if if we're really working hard there nice uh so what's a good lesson you've learned from another producer i never you know i never interned with anybody Mm -hmm. um so i haven't really had the opportunity to work with other producers Hmm. um ever the closest was when the jerry finn mixed the album from here to infirmary Mm -hmm. for the alkaline trio he was an interesting guy yeah one of my favorite producers ever yeah he, he was an interesting person, and speaking of mixing, he mixed that record in, I believe, just about a day, maybe a day and a half. Wow, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, so he just didn't have a lot of time, and he was sick also. I think he had a cold. But at any rate, um, yeah, I, 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 to be honest with you, I can't actually think of anything I've necessarily learned okay. from a personal interaction with another producer. There's there's people that whose records I admire, like, say, uh, Roy Thomas Baker, who used to do all the old cars records and the queen records um i have uh <clears throat> long been an admirer of his and his sort of uh go for it bombastic approach to certain things but as far as personal interaction i, I just haven't worked with enough mm. other other producers to really have an answer to that one tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio it happened a long time ago but i think watching matt skiba sing the vocals on uh the, for the album God Damn It was mm. pretty amazing. That was probably my that was probably one of the most impressive vocal performances I had ever seen. It was it was pretty great. He, he this was uh, he was he had uh, actually had to uh, take a break from singing for a while because they had gotten off tour and he used to lose his voice after tour all the time. So after taking a break, getting his voice back in shape, he came in and sang, and I think he sang all the vocals for that record in probably one day. Wow. wow! Nailed, just incredible performance. So that was that. That was <clears throat> anytime you can watch someone just totally kill it is is fantastic. Where you could, where where the performance is so amazing that you can simply just sit back and as a fan press record and and watch and and enjoy it is is pretty awesome. That, that's awesome. Uh, do you think there was anything he did to get into that place where he was able to do that you could shed light on, or was it kind of just a lightning in the bottle type of thing? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it was really simply having his voice in good shape. That 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 was it. His he's in order to have a long career. I know that the doctors have told him not to go too hard on his voice anymore, so you don't hear that sort of uh, lay it all out on the line type of vocal performance from him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was more just a sort of a that and the re- the record after it. I think it was uh, what was that one? Maybe I'll catch fire. But yeah, both those he was able to really once he had his voice nice and rested, he was he was able to just go in there and just really just lay it all out there 100%, which That's was awesome. a lot of fun to watch. What about one of the worst moments, and what did you learn from it? I think it's important to have uh, good personal chemistry with the with the people you work with, and that, that for, for the 20 years that I've had my own studio, I would say I've been able, fortunate enough to have that 99.9% of the time. But, you know, as in all things in life, you will run across... <clears throat> some people that you don't might not necessarily gel with so well so you try to just get through that and try to have, hope that those sorts of situations aren't don't become a common common thing nice i like that uh so let's talk about some of your t- personal tastes uh what's a perfect record that somebody else has made and what about it makes it perfect from a f- for uh the, the folks that are probably listening to this on, on the punk side of things um uh, I loved uh, the replacements a lot. Yeah, my favorite, my top three favorite bands as well. Uh, yeah, so like that when the album "Let It Be" came out, that was sort of the perfect timing for me because it spoke to the sort of teenage angst that uh, I was living at the time, and uh, that that record still resonates with me a lot. I like the fact that that record covers a lot of different emotional bases mm-hmm. in the sense of like from from. from it goes from it can be uh, incredibly poignant, somber, to flat out shit kicking, in the space of two or three songs. Yeah, that's a great point. I never thought of it that way. That's the one I would pick then. That's a classic record in my estimation. Yeah, uh, it's uh, some of my favorite lyrics ever. Uh, so tell me about five records in your musical growth, like five records that really had an impact on you and how they helped your growth musically. Sure. The Clash is London Calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came out when I was really young and getting into music. Um, and that, I had known about The Clash. I'd had the Green album, their first album prior to that. Mm-hmm. And then when London Calling came out, it was such a magnificent album. It also became very popular. They had a hit on the radio, like regular AM radio, mm-hmm. which was uh, startling to me to see a band go become that popular. Um, the, uh, the Big Star albums. The mm-hmm. first two, number one record in Radio City, had a great effect on me. Nevermind by Nirvana was a game-changing record, I feel like, when it came out. And I was a big fan of The Who when I was younger as well. Uh, the Who Sell Out is an album they made in the 60s that is a um, very creative record. It's They put their own fake commercials in between the songs. I thought that was a cool way to sort of approach the album concept. I, I, it, it's, it's something you'll see a little bit more now where bands will sort of make incorporate sort of a conceptual idea into their records the Lawrence Arms have done that a few times which I really love so those are the ones I would name as far as that goes cool um what's your favorite record of recent times and what inspires you about it probably recent times probably uh 1989 by Taylor Swift huh and what what are you liking about that record uh I think the songwriting is cool I think um I think the the sounds are very modern, yet um, I enjoy them. Hmm. 
you know, I've, I've mentioned a lot of older stuff that uh, I like, which is true, but I also, I'm not a uh, old get off my lawn kind of guy. <laughs> I like, I like, a, there's, there's new stuff that I like a lot, and that would be, that would definitely be one of the, uh, one of the records. I, I like the fact that the, I, I like any album like that where it can turn the entire sort of music industry on its head. I, th I think I, I respect that sort of power when an artist can do that. I like to see that. Sort of the same thing that Adele had with her most mm -hmm. recent record. You know, people claiming that the music business is dead and all that, and then she just comes in and just blows everybody away. You know, it's really cool to see that happen. When you yeah. See an artist, <laughs> when you see an artist do that, it's... you. I, I just love to see that where an artist can come in and just basically rule the world like that. Make everybody take notice type of thing. Yeah, I agree. That's really cool. Um, so our last question is, uh, what have you been working on lately? Well, I do mostly mixing now, um, mm. taking a little bit of a break from, from production uh, after doing a bunch of records uh, the past few years, doing just a lot of, doing a lot of mixing. But I am working on a couple things right now. Uh, we did an album for the band The Murder Burgers from uh, mm. Scotland, and we're wrapping that up right now. The mix on that is getting wrapped up. Uh, there's a band called from Chicago called The Arrivals that are reissuing some of their earlier work and I'm remixing an album for them called uh, Exenator Orange. Um, I'm not sure what the release on that is going to be. And then probably just mixing some of the um, the some of the projects that are being done at Atlas right now. The guys that work there do mix a lot of their own stuff but there's probably at least a couple things there that I'll be working like I believe there might be a new Downtown Struts album uh, coming out and uh, Hopefully I will be mixing that. I love that band. Hope, hope, hopefully I get to work on that. So yeah, just doing a lot of mixing right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 